Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Happy to be joined again today by Josh Blank, research director for the Texas Politics Project. Josh, how are you this fine uh, Trump trial morning? Actually, Trump indictment. That's yeah, I was gonna say it's not Trump arraignment. No, we're not morning. there yet. Um, I get ahead of ourselves. No, well, you know, I'm gonna, you know, we have to at least flag that this is happening since it's, you know, yeah, of, of some consequence. I don't think the trial comes until the trench warfare period is over. Right. So yes. There's a lot of. I, I went too fast with the alliteration. Yeah. Um, so today, I'm, I'm still feeling tantalizing uh, Trump. I'm trial. still alliterating and and feeling showy after the Taylor Swift experience Saturday night. Um, it's true. You've been impossible, <laughs> right? Well, even more impossible than usual. Um, just shake it off, Josh. <laughs> there we uh, go. Oh, good. The, the pace of the legislative session in Austin here, getting down back back down to reality. Right, okay. Pace of the legislative session in Austin is is you know continues to be pretty brisk with. Committee's still the center of most of the action, but floor, you know, floor activity really picking up in both chambers as, you know, is appropriate for where we are. So I, I, I thought today, you know, we'd highlight a few things that are going on, mainly the uh, what's going on in the House this week, but a couple of other interesting things that have happened this week. Mm-hmm. And as I said at the beginning, it seems kind of impossible not to at least mention the major national political, sto- political story dominating politics in the U.S. right now, and getting a lot of international coverage, and that's the arraignment of former President Trump in New York. Today, we're recording Tuesday morning, and everybody's, you know, waiting with bated breath for him to show up, which is supposed to happen this afternoon, and I don't want to poke at that hornet's nest anymore for today. Right. Uh, Very likely, we'll have the chance to come back to this topic. Um, But do want to flag that if you're looking for information on views of Trump in Texas, uh, we did a podcast on this a couple of weeks ago and compiled a ton of data in the run-up to his rally in Waco um, at that time. You can find that in the blog section of the Texas Politics Project website, texaspolitics.utexas.edu. And if you're more of a DIY type, um, you can use the search engine on our website to find the Donald Trump tag or, or do a manual search, and you'll find Hundreds of results going back to 2015. I, I think I, I just noticed, I think, you know, the other day when I was looking at it, there are, I think, 160 plus survey results right. depicted in, in that in that search engine. And that's, and that's probably even a little light. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. I think so. There's probably some other. But yeah, there, there's just, there's a lot. And I guess I should say hundreds of, so there's about 160 or, you know, something like that in results, but there are then thousands of graphics. Yeah, those are, bro- yeah, those. those are broken down by every conceivable demographic you might want to look at. Right. So. And we pulled highlights out for that blog post, but there's also just a lot of raw material for you to, to, to go look at if you are so inclined or find it useless or useless, find it useful. <laughs> um, but back in Texas, the, the big legislative event this week, I think, in terms of overall impact, 
uh, is the House budget bill being debated on the floor this Thursday? Uh, bill's a thousand pages long, mm-hmm. appropriately. Yep. Uh, after all, they have to cover two years. Yeah. Um, yeah. And more than 380 amendments have been fi- had been filed by the Monday morning deadline. And there's an amendment packet circulating that's still not posted on the website, but the circulating in capital circles. The dark um, net. Yes, on the on the well, you know the gray nets. Um, we'll, we'll link the uh, the amendment packet uh, that is in circulation to the post for this podcast uh, on the same Texas Politics Project website. So it'll be a, a blog post for this podcast if you found it elsewhere, and we'll we'll put a link to that packet in there. Um, but this raises the issue of what the spending priorities look like as the rubber meets the road in the legislature and the budget process. We'll just get the cliche out of the way now. It's the only bill the legislature has to pass. Right. Um, and this bill came out of the Appropriations Committee on a pretty lopsided but party line vote, 23-3, um, for the biennial budget. A few highlights to set up what we're going to talk about in public opinion. So spends about $136.9 billion in general revenue, the budget itself being larger than that. Right, that doesn't include federal dollars. Yeah, given federal dollars, other things. Um, recommends an additional $5 billion for public schools, somewhat more fun, uh, funding for higher education, and that's, a, I, I believe, a difference with the Senate version. Uh, about $3 billion to boost mental health services, about $3.5 billion for cost of living adjustments for retired teachers, uh, $5.3 billion from the surplus to lower property taxes, and then an additional $12 billion in school property tax cuts. And, you know, you add those two together for the, the bottom line property tax cut total. And then on border security spending, about $4.6 billion. Last I saw, identical to what was in the Senate. You know, we've talked about this a bit. We'll talk about it more. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, as the legislature was getting underway or, you know, had just gotten underway in our February poll, we asked Texans about their views of spending in several general areas. And, you know, looking at what's in there and what's been talked about, not to pat ourselves on the back too much, we did a pretty good job of covering the waterfront Mm-hmm. You know, and a couple of things that aren't being talked about that much, well, it's good to have the data on those. So, so Josh, g- give us a sense of how, what the results were and how this looked compared to what we found. Yeah, and I think it's important to sort of explain, you know, what the question kind of looks like here. Essentially, yeah. we, we give people 12 broad policy, you know, broad-ish, I would say, policy areas like, you know, mental health services, K-12 public education, border security, transportation to kind of give you an idea. And then we ask whether or not, you know, the, the voters think that the spate is spending too much, too little, or about the right amount. Now, look, we don't think that people know how much the state is spending on any of these areas in any sort of concrete way. This, the idea of a question like this is to get a sense of what people think about you know, their perception of the state's commitment to these areas fiscally, right? right. Um, and that's something that people do. You know, People can say, you know, again, we talk about Texas often as a low taxes, low services kind of state. And so ultimately, people will have a perception of whether the state is invested in public ed or is invested in electric infrastructure or water infrastructure or not. They can also say, hey, I have no idea. What I've always liked about this, you know, this formulation is, you know, I mean, it's both this strength and its weakness is that it's it's kind of in that area. It, it captures both people's kind of disposition, what, what they sort of have in their head about mm. the current sense, but also gives us some indication of how they might respond 
to new information about this. Exactly. And so, and, and I think that's the, the most important point here is that, you know, when you see an area where, you know, large majorities of voters and especially large majorities of majority party voters are saying the state is spending too little, that tells you or might explain why the legislature might then want to kick in some more money so that when they go back around to the other, you know, sort of part of Texas politics, then the two-year campaign cycle after the legislative cycle, they can say, and we made historic investments in X. Right. Y, Z. So what does it look like? Well, you know, we asked about 12 different areas and, and a majority of re registered voters said the state was spending too little in, in five of those 12 areas. So just, just under half. Those included children in the state's care, unsurprisingly, 50% said the state was spending too little. Water infrastructure, 51%. Healthcare, 52%. Electric infrastructure, 56%. And then mental health services was, was 60%. So the highest of, of all of those issues, that was the area where, you know, Texans thought the state should be spending more. You know, the view among Democrats was that there was too little spending in most areas, except for border security and the penal system. And that's, you know, I think aligns with Democratic ideology and on just general Democratic yeah, I mean, views you know, about state commitment to social services. In a rough sense, I remember, you know, when we first saw these results, you kind of look at it and go, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, and you want that. You want, we call that internal consistency, yes. right? So among Republicans, only one policy area saw a majority that said the state was spending too little. This was border security. I said, well, I wanted to give everybody a oh, second to sorry, guess. I went too fast. Um, and <laughs> You'll you know, never guess what it was. And, and we've asked about border security spending in isolation. And I mean, one of the you know interesting things just to point out is that as the state has ramped up its border security spending in the last few years, uh, the share of Republicans who say the state is spending too little has also increased. Uh, so actually, you know, there's not a lot of responsiveness on this. And in and, and a lot of ways, this is why... There's not a lot of debate about this. There's not. Yeah. There's no difference in the House and Senate budgets because you know what? They're going to spend it. Right. One of those rare moments where you're not really hearing a lot about border security because the consensus among the majority party is so firm. And it's a, and as we've talked about in the podcast before, yeah. it's a good issue for Republicans in terms of where Democrats are as a group on border security. Yeah, it's you know it's certainly an issue in which they have a lot of advantages, which we've talked about. You know, something that's kind of important here, and I'll talk a little bit more of the main areas. But you know, it's interesting in that you know we used to ask about legislative priorities and prior sessions, and I would say you know this is some of this was circumstantial. You know, when you think about. 2011, 2013, you know, think about sort of shifts in the last decade over public opinion. The presence of, you know, a, a significant minority, but a significant share of Republicans who who really emphasize the importance of limiting state spending, keeping government small as the priority. And it's, yeah, it's a thing unto itself. Unto itself, you know, that has really kind of disappeared. Yeah. I mean, there's not a lot of, uh, you know, fiscal conservatism floating around out there. And so, you know, and just to say- you know, even though uh, there are very few, you know, again, I think what you find is the plurality position among most Republicans across most spending areas that the state's spending about the right amount. Yeah. It's not that there's necessarily a call to decrease spending dramatically in a lot of areas, nor to increase spending dramatically in a lot of areas. It's just generally kind of a status quo, you know, sense, which is, it's kind of interesting to me, this is, you know, just fundamentally, like the budget does keep going up. The state keeps growing. The spending keeps growing. In some ways, you know, you can look at some policies, say government is growing here, but anyway, well, that's another podcast. Well, maybe. well I, I was just going to say, I mean, it's something that's popped up in a few areas and, if, you know, a few different domains, not just yeah. policy areas, but a few different domains. This notion of, you know, what is the accumulated view of the status quo among the party in power and their partisans yeah. um, at the popular level after a couple of decades of running the show? And I think we probably could string a bunch of stuff together on that that would be really interesting. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, right now, I would say, you know, what, what you can say is, is that we're, if in the last, you know, 
the last part of the last decade, and part of this is just dating myself kind of when I started looking at this stuff closely, yeah. but if you start thinking about, you know, the Tea Party wave and moving in, you know, there's been, you know, probably, you know, a relative shift from this focus on, again, limiting state spending to this sort of just, you know, kind of status, or I would say, no, it says to limiting spending by local governments. I mean, that's actually right, where I think right. the shift kind of happens. You know, that happened again. Well, there, you could imagine this in like the broad scope section of a history or a textbook mm-hmm. or something. You know, it's, you know, I think, I think I, I'm sort of thinking about your yeah. notion of like how long you've been watching, but yeah. you know, you think about like the paragraph in the section about the last, you know, about the party shift, right? you know, it takes a while for you to like shake off the, the sense that you're undoing right. what came before you. Yeah, that's right. That makes sense. Right. At least among, you know, in the fat part of the distribution. Yeah. There's lots of waste, fraud and abuse to, to, to stamp out and to cut. When right. you just take power, but once you've been in power for a decade, right, a little bit more difficult, and that transfers to a bunch of other policy areas. Yeah, right. I think you know it's like yeah, okay, so. we've you know you can only start t- talking about having to really change the status quo for so long when this you're implicated in the status quo. Yeah, exactly. So you know, except for border, so saying that aside, you know, except for border security, you know, children in the state's care and and mental health were the only other areas where not a majority but a plurality of Republicans said you know the state is not spending enough. In each of the other nine areas we looked at, the plurality position was the state is spending enough, about right. the right amount. And so, you know, to me, you know, again, we, we kind of, this is sort of one of the themes of of this podcast, this session, maybe one of the themes of the session, but, you know, we'll kind of come back to this, I'm sure. But, you know, this creates a lot of space again, I think, yeah. you know, once you kind of take care of that border security spending and say, we did that, at that point, you know, not only is there not, you know, a lot of calls for big shifts in spending either way, but also, and I mean, I think we're acknowledging this in the way we write this question. It's also just not terribly salient to people, you right? Know? And 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 difficult to understand too. Yeah, and you know, the missing piece here, I think, a little bit not missing, but the the yeah. other shoe dropping here is the item when we did ask people about taxation, right? And you know, the by far the widest, you know, the, mm-hmm. the item, the the tax, the state tax, right. the widest reported impact was the property tax, and that is right now where most of the you know, it's not spending, but most of the allocation of this budget surplus, if you think about it, that mm-hmm. way is going right now. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. So, you know, so so I think that, you know, as you look at that, I mean, this budget as we're, you know, the, you know, we're focused on the House budget, but the Senate budget, you know, there's going to be fights on this. There's going to be a big fight over yeah. the property, what the prop, there's already a big fight going on right. over how they're going to execute the property tax. Um, but- you know, you look at these numbers, you look at the Republican numbers, but even for that matter, where Democrats are to some degree, and you do see a reasonable degree of alignment here, certainly with Republican attitudes, even allowing for the slack that you're, you know, that you're talking about. In other words, the space for the legislature to lead rather than follow, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's one of those interesting things, you know, going into the session, there's so much focus on, you know, what they were going to do with the budget surplus. You know, I think the politics, you know, very quickly, you know, the public politics very quickly showed that most of that was going to be focused on property tax reduction. Um, and I think you could say, yeah. sure, you know, I mean, again, where, which, which dollar goes where is kind of, you know, sometimes real and sometimes hard, but like, you know, yeah. but the other side of this too is, you know, I just make this point again about, you know, I think public response, you know, if you were to go to any, you know, your, your modal voter just in say, you know, hey, the, the house is going to spend $3.6 billion on X and $4.8 billion on Y and, and $10 billion on Z. You know, honestly, that doesn't mean anything to most people. 
Because right. you'd say to them, hey, how, you know, if you could ask that same, and that person, you say, what do you think about this? And say, hey, by the way, how big is the Texas budget? And you know what? Almost nobody will have any sense of the size of the Texas budget, how much people are spending, whether that's a lot of money, whether that's a little, and both in terms of, both in terms of the overall budget, but also in terms of the need. You know, right. I was talking to a group the other week, you know, and I kind of have to say as a caveat, you know, I don't work at the LBJ school and I'm not an economist. Right. You know, is a $3 billion increase in whatever this space is, is that a lot? Right. Is that something that like, does that even is, like- are you, are you saying, do you know if it's too much, too little or the right amount? <laughs> and I, my answer is I have no idea. I don't know. Which is, well, hey, listen, that's the problem with expertise in some ways, right? You know, you have to be honest about these or you should be honest about these things. But I mean, part of it is like, look, you know, is this a lot in terms of the state's needs? Does this Does this meet growing needs? Does this meet changes because of inflation? And honestly, I, you know, in a lot of these spaces, I have no idea and I definitely know how much the budget is and I know how much these numbers are. So then when you go to someone, you say, you don't know how much the budget is. You don't know what they used to be spending on this. It's just a different ballgame. And so I think, you know, it's, it's one of those things at this point, the the broad takeaway from my perspective though, is, you know, yeah, there was this huge budget surplus, but there wasn't some big, obvious direct clamor for some kind of clear spending. And to the extent that like property taxes ended up sucking up all of that, I don't know if that's following or leading, you know, I mean, a li- uh, to your point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The arrows. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think one other thing before we move on a little bit, I think it's in a way it's almost a good transition is that, um, you know, two things lurking in that data. And we talked about this at the at the beginning and it's playing out in the legislature, I think in an interesting way are these infrastructure issues. Yeah. You know, I mean, there was a lot of support in those numbers you read for particularly water infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, electric is a thing on, on in and of itself yeah. and on its own. I'm yeah. going to set that aside for the That's moment. That's a tricky one. But for water and, and to a lesser degree, but still there, transportation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are pretty substantial structural moves quietly moving their way through the system uh, to develop – you know, to, to increase sort of funding for water and transportation infrastructure. And it's going to be interesting to watch those and and, can, and see if they continue to move and if ultimately some of that money is put there. You know, it's the kind of thing that I think the, the public is, you know, for all the reasons you were just discussing, yeah. unlikely to be highly salient to the public, but really having to jockey for position and doing maybe a little better than I would have expected six or eight months ago. Yeah, but you know we've talked about it here a lot. We began to hear murmurs about this, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the in the fall, and certainly right after the election. And uh, some of these things are moving forward. And I think they are. You know, there are they are. I think the the people that are interested in those issues are doing a pretty good job so far of moving legislation through at about the right level of putting their, you know, sticking their heads above the hedges. Yeah. I mean, it strikes me that's, that's one of those things where that's sort of like, let's, you know, I would broadly almost classify that into, you know, that infrastructure piece. It, it, it fits in the economic development, you know, in a way that, you know, and for voters, it's one of those things, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's impossible. You can't deny the growth in the state. If you live anywhere near any urban center, bar none, 
right? There are issues going on with respect to transportation. There are water issues going on yeah. everywhere in the state right now. And electricity obviously is its own thing, but it's definitely, you know, it's yeah. more salient than we would expect. But I also don't think that voters are necessarily calling for big, you know, multi-decade infrastructure investments until there's a problem. But the problem right. is, is that when there's a problem, then you actually you start the process that's going to take a decade plus to complete. So that's too late. Right. And this requires a little bit more for, you know, forethought and kind of future oriented thinking on the part of the legislature. It's honestly, you know, Hey, you know, I don't know. I watch politics a lot. <laughs> it's pretty rare to see legislators of anybody anywhere thinking beyond the next election cycle. Right. But there's a lot of exposure with something like this. So I think on the one hand, you know, you can kind of see that bubbling up down there, you know, especially if you're Republicans in a more competitive state, worrying about, you know, if the trip to the office when it happens takes an hour and a half, what used yeah. to take 20, like that's a problem. It's and a it's, quali- a non, it's a non-glorious issue. It's a quality I mean, of life You know, we stuff. were involved in that research project a couple of years mm-hmm. ago in which we talked to a lot of legislators oh, within yeah. Texas and, and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the common themes was that, you know, you're kind of doing the Lord's work here because yeah. everything takes a long time. It's complicated. There's no short-term political payoff in most cases. And so most people don't really want to mess with it. And there are a lot of other cross currents. For example, as we're seeing right now, not to comment on the yeah. virtues of the plan or not, but the implementation of the Project Connect thing in Austin, right. Project in Austin, the attempted involvement of the legislature in that right mm-hmm. now, et cetera. So, yeah. So, you know, let's let's look at um you know, a few other things going on while mm-hmm. we still have a little bit of time. Um and, and I guess you know, we had talked about this as sort of a check-in post budget yeah. in terms of, you know, pegging this to some of the things that are right. going on. Um, you know, a couple of observations. As expected, Lieutenant Governor Patrick continues to dominate the Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was an interesting kind of blip in that uh, just yesterday, as we were, again, we were recording this on Tuesday. And so when the senators were on the floor to pass some bills on Monday, um, you know, about an hour and a half in, they went back to a bill that had passed, a very controversial bill that had passed on second reading the previous the previous week. And most of our re- uh, listeners will know this, but just to clear, if you just happen to stumble into this, yeah. <laughs> this, this and you're podcast, still listening, <laughs> and you're still listening, you know, second reading is really the the one that matters of the three times a bill has to be read. Um, and this was SB fourteen, the the very controversial bill, um, at least among some people, uh, authored by Senator Donna, Cam- Donna Campbell, that would essentially prohibit most gender affirming medical care in Texas, right. Now, this bill, as I said, had been passed with some debate uh, last week. Now, after the Senate had been in for a while yesterday, there was a motion by Senator Brian Hughes, who is sort of a, you know, one of the major lieutenants of the lieutenant governor. Yep. Lieutenant governor's lieutenant. I Mm -hmm. should have thought about phrasing that differently, maybe. But um, he moved to suspend the rules so they could reconsider the passage of SP 14. And the point here was to reconsider an amendment that had been added to the bill, um, and that amend- in, in the previous, in its initial second reading, mm-hmm. uh, that amendment had been worked out with the House author, State Representative Tom Oliverson. And it's, it's interesting to note here, both uh, Senator Campbell and representatives, State Representative Oliverson are doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, and and th- that amendment would have exempted children that were already receiving gender-affirming medical treatment like puberty blockers or hormone, th- or hormone therapy medications. It mm-hmm. would have kind of grandparented them in as an exception right. to the prohibitions in the bill. Now, that amendment was originally passed without objection. Uh, Full stop, just 
Yeah. No objection. Right. Well, we'll, we'll and and Senator Campbell then, you know, having had the rules suspended by the motion of Senator Hughes and and the quick cooperation and and a seating of the, the lieutenant governor who was presiding at the time and uh, the parliamentarian. She now wanted a do-over on that amendment, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of Democrats rose to ask her some questions about this. Now, I would note that nobody objected to the motion, which I didn't quite understand, but I, you know, I'll have to ask some people about that some more. I think they missed an opportunity, frankly, but... Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of Democrats then rose to try to find out from Senator Campbell why she wanted to roll back the amendment. So we've got a brief excerpt of an exchange between Senator Campbell and Democratic Senator Jose Menendez. So let's roll that clip and then we'll talk about it on the other side. What is the policy decision to remove the amendment today? The actual amendment that I put on 14? Or are you talking about the date from December? The, the, the amendment that would allow the children who are currently under the care of a doctor to continue to finish their care? The, the amendment was not discussed in committee, and there were so many questions that have been brought up since the amendment was put on that out of respect for the body, I'm going to just take it down, ask that it be taken down. But no one objected to your amendment when we adopted the amendment. So what do you mean you by respect? You didn't vote for the amendment. Uh, no, I, I, there was no objection. Oh, the, the president said, Does, is there objection? Without objection, amendment's adopted. So no one objected to the amendment. So I don't understand where we're lacking respect for the body. I think, well, not I think, I know. There have been so many questions that have come up. There was no discussion regarding the amendment I was going to put on in committee. And truly, out of respect for everyone, I am going to ask for that it just be uh, removed. I want to. I want to withdraw it. Remove it. Okay. Now, what Senator Campbell isn't saying, and I think what both Senator Menendez and then in a subsequent exchange, Senator uh, Nathan Johnson, another Democrat, seemed to be trying to get her to admit, pretty <laughs> notably, if painfully, without any success is that the amendment had been heavily criticized in the intervening days by, you know, the most conservative groups and and some, you know, opinion leaders of those groups, um, including the state GOP chairman, a former House backbencher, Matt Rinaldi, um, on Twitter and, and certainly, I'm sure, in feedback to their to their office. And, you know, you can find Rinaldi's, uh, uh, Chairman Rinaldi's tweets if, if you're so inclined. It had the usual kind of language describing gender-affirming treatment as castration and mutilate, chemical mu- and mutilation, et child cetera. Abuse, child abuse. Child abuse. And then later on, you know, after this was passed, uh, claimed that it wasn't, you know, anybody bowing to pressure from anyone. They were just doing the right thing, et cetera. Um, it was a very awkward moment, though, and 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 you one that I thought the lieutenant governor, I would say, was not enjoying much. And I'll and I'll you know that's a judgment call. Sure. Um, you can find you know you can find the clip, and and uh, if you didn't see it, and you know ch- check me on this. Um, as the parliamentarian walked him through the maneuvers, lieutenant governor was very um, let's say brisk yeah. in getting through the sequence of motions to strip the amendment. Uh, and, and to also move up the effective date of the right. bill. That's part of what that, mm-hmm. some of that 
direction, redirection and misdirection going on mm-hmm. is that the, you know, in stripping off the bill, they all, in stripping off the amendment that was being discussed, part of that amendment had also moved up the effective date of the legislation. Right. Um, and, and there was a real effort, I think, to get the whole thing behind them and the bill back on track. Now, I don't think this is proof positive that, you know, lieutenant governor is slipping or something. Right. But, but something had clearly gone wrong there and gone amiss, and it did raise the question of the relationship between what many people perceive as one of the important roots of the lieutenant governor's power, which is the fact that, you know, he is ultimately of, you know, compared to the other members of the big mm-hmm. three, lieutenant governor is kind of the party activist guy, you yeah. know. Um, he's their avatar, if you will. Um and so it was It was a very interesting moment, interesting in terms of this theme we talked about, but also interesting in terms of, you know, the difference between what's going on in the House and what's going on in the Senate. Yeah. And their, and their institutional design, of course, but. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's just another, you know, it's just another great example. I mean, just imagine, you know, had this happened in the House, how much more difficult it would have been to kind of turn back the clock yeah. Go back, undo what they did, right. and come out. But it's also, you know, I mean, just as as an observer of these things, it just in and of itself, setting aside the institutional dynamics, it's just a really, you know, again, say what you want about where the pressure came from or who was doing what or respect for whom. It was a pretty remarkable instance and a really naked one in which, you know, essentially in real time, almost, almost in real time, you could see the control of, you know, the most far right elements or the, even some of the dissident elements of the party essentially coming in and tweaking the legislation. And I mean, importantly, not even legislation that the senators had all agreed to, even if by silence, but an amendment that had been agreed on between the senators and an important House member carrying the same bill yeah. who had defended the the amendments, yeah. who now is kind of being left out to dry, right? Yeah. Well, and, and that, and that, you know, yeah. And, and I think that that really, um, yeah, I mean, it, it underlines the degree to which you know, it underlines a lot of different things. I mean, you know, I don't want to be overly repetitive here, yeah. but yeah, I mean, I, I think that it was it was a real moment. And look, I, to be fair, and I, I'm sure that, you know, listeners who have been watching this for a long time will say, hey, look, you know, it became kind of a joke that, you know, the House would, you know, turn back the clock, yeah. you know, or, hey, backup members yeah. uh, during the Strauss Right. Uh, during during so the heyday of the Strauss speakership when, you know, there were big fights going on where, you know, Strauss was besieged, you know, one day it would be, you know, Trey Martinez Fisher and the Democrats pushing them on procedure. Yeah. Another day it would be the Tea Party guys. And so, look, you know, it, it, part of skillful leadership in these chambers is being able to, shall we say, take full ex- full advantage of the flexibility of the rules. Mm-hmm. And, you know, understanding when and where you can stretch them and under what circumstances. But, it, you know, this was still, you know, because of the degree to which this had seemed worked out the right. week before and the degree to which this hasn't been happening much in the Senate in particular. Yeah. It was, a, you know, it was an interesting moment. I mean, it's not a, a political earthquake, but I think, you know, it, it'll be one of the moments, we'll, you know, I'll remember about this session. Right? Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and, you know, in a more practical way, the question now on the issue is you kind of flag, Josh, you know, how's the House going to respond? I mean, yeah. uh, as you kind of said, you know, State Rep. Oliverson had been very publicly supportive of the bill with this grandparenting amendment in. Um, 
in, in a pretty public way and in the way of both the rivalries and the tensions that are baked into yeah. the House and the Senate, but also the personal piece of this. You know, it's it's going to be very interesting to see what happens as as these bills as this bill moves through on something that again, pretty obviously, some very activated elements of the coalition are paying attention to. And we should flag, you know, there's very good coverage of this from. Uh, not surprisingly, Lauren McGahee of the Dallas Morning News has been on this beat really per, uh, effectively and consistently for a while now, and also Taylor Goldenstein in the Houston Chronicle. And the uh, McGahee captures the blow-by-blow blow very well. The Chronicle did an interesting thing, and I don't know, it may be different now, mm-hmm. but as of yesterday afternoon, they had posted the update on this on top of the previous story in the Chronicle about how – the subtext of which, of, of which was, well, reasonable minds kind of prevailed at least in this grandfathering clause. Right. So it's almost like, you know, they were, you know, it's like, oh, okay, we, should, we were giving people the benefit of the doubt and then it yeah. kind of didn't work out. So, you know, I would look at both of those. Yeah. Now, so another interesting thing going on this week that I think, you know, we've also talked about in here. And again, this is one of those issues that's not you know, galactically earth-shaking, but it's gotten a lot of attention inside the building and, and inside Austin because of the resources that have gone into this mm-hmm. and the long-term nature of the policy issue. And that's, of course, gambling and gaming. Um, and the two gaming, the two big gaming bills that are out there in the House, the uh, Chairman Leach's bill on online sports betting and the big Charlie Guerin omnibus bill on casino gambling – um, both of those moved out of committee with provisions that will require super majorities to pass for proposed constitutional amendments. Sure. Um, and so that was, you know, kind of big news in the community. That's as far as these bills yeah. have gotten right. after several years of trying and, and many millions invested and, you know, pools built and stuff in the lobby. Uh, tr- pools built, trips taken. Right. Um, but over in the Senate, uh, Lieutenant Governor Still not on board to circle back to, you know, where the lieutenant governor is on things. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of talk about this, of course. I think we even mentioned it last week in passing, kind of in the podcast, maybe the week before. But, you know, the lieutenant governor, you know, has made it clear recently um, that he's still not on board. But he did so in a way that, again, kind of circles back and helps illustrate kind of what the dynamic we're yeah. seeing. And, the, and, again, differences between the House dynamic, the Senate dynamic – well, we'll talk about it more on the other side. We're going to play an excerpt from uh, uh, an interview uh, that the lieutenant governor did with conservative radio host uh, and and really, you know, guys become one of the master signal relayers in the information ecosystem in, in Republican Texas, and that's Mark Davis. And this was really the governor saying, I'm not having any of it. So let's roll the, those clips. And what you're going to hear um, before we roll are, t- just to, you know, f- to be fair, Two, two separate clips that we've just combined in the same conversation. I don't think we're misrepresenting anything, but I just don't want you to think it's just one clip. So let's roll those. Unless I have 15, 16 Republicans, meaning it's a Republican-driven bill because we're in a Republican-driven state mm-hmm. led by conservative Republicans, I'm not bringing a bill to the floor. I need to have consensus by the Republicans. Otherwise, it's a bill that the Democrats are passing. We don't do that in the Senate. I, you know, says a lot. Um, you know, and, and 
This is, again, not news in terms of the general orientation. Right. Uh, the lieutenant governor made a point of not appointing of appointing only one Democratic chair, committee chair, and saying that and that would be it. And yeah. um, And, it, you know, Senator John Whitmire, um, with, which, you know, and this had a fairly natural expiration date as yeah. chairs go. Not talking about Senator Whitmire personally. Um and, and, you know, so I thought this was interesting in a lot of ways. Before we go on, I want to just give a hat tip for that clip. That was from coverage by Monica Madden, the Capitol correspondent for KXAN here in Austin. Uh, she tracked that clip down from the Mark Davis show for a story that she did on KXAN over the weekend, and you can find that on, on their website. Um, but, you know, we talked about the, the gambling, how the lieutenant governor isn't into it pretty clearly, and, you know, public opinion is still – a little tough for the for the gambling advocates, right? Yeah, when we asked about whether gambling laws in Texas should be made more strict, less strict, or just basically left alone, you know, overall, you know, the 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 energy was a little bit on making it less strict. A plurality, you know, thirty nine percent said make it less strict. Twenty five percent said the status quo. Twenty percent one force and make it make it more one five said make it more strict. You know, among Republicans, it was pretty similar actually to the statewide numbers overall. You know, I mean, in fact, it was almost identical. But when we look at the people who say that they're extremely conservative, 60% would either leave the status quo or make those laws more strict. And similar numbers of people for, you know, again, we've talked, we've actually written about this a long time ago in the past, but these numbers actually still kind of come up again. When we look at people with strong religious identifications in Texas who almost entirely identify with the Republican Party, they hold views similar to the extremely conservative Texans who say essentially either leave those laws alone or make them more strict. And so given that, you know, given that, you know, you kind of look at at those groups who really dominate, especially Republican primaries, you have, a, you know, a little bit less than a third who want to see gambling laws loose. And then to read beyond the data here, honestly, and just saying I'm reading beyond the data, probably not a central issue for a lot of those people. You know, it's probably not likely that a lot of very conservative voters who want to see the voting law or the gambling laws made less strict. This is probably not more important to them than immigration on the border. It's not more important than, you know, uh, property tax cuts. And so- you know, in some ways, I think, you know, without some sort of groundswell and, and again, attitudes that look like this, there's not really much reason for the lieutenant governor to kind of, I don't know, to use his own capital to push this yeah. issue. I it's mean, still a stretch. And, and I think this is one of those issues where, you know, look, it's it's easy to be cynical is too strong a word, but I'll just say cynical. It's easy to be cynical, be about, skeptical or cynical? about the politics of this and, and decision making by the lieutenant governor and other leaders. But I think it is fair if you look at things, you know, if you look at gambling, mm-hmm. you look at cannabis, yep. and you look at the way that the lieutenant governor is, has, is, you know, is a pretty hard no on on those, on both of those policy areas, mm-hmm. despite a lot of cross currents, you know, I, I do think it's fair to say that the lieutenant governor is, with a lot of complications, a relatively, you know, organic expression of yeah. that part of the Republican base. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, and so, you know, there is a, a bit of his own impulses here that are reinforcing the politics. You know, I think it's notable going back to when he ran for that position. And I remember the debate with him and Dewhurst and I want to say it was Staples and Patterson, right? And I remember when the abortion issue came up and there was a moment where, you know, Patrick basically w- went out on front and said, you know, I'm... I'm down for banning abortion basically in all circumstances. Yeah. And I remember, you know, you look at that, you look at that debate stage and you, and they all kind of, kind of looked at each other and there was a pause for a second. And then, you know, it's kind of like, me, me too, <laughs> you know? And I think that's kind of, you know, and the thing, I mean, there's some issues, especially again, that sort of organic 
you know, real depths of conservatism in the state that, you know, are just, it's, it's his home base. Yeah. And I think, you know, and I mean, that plus the other piece of it, I mean, what's interesting about the, the clip before that about it is, you know, it's interesting to imagine that, you know, if he had 10 Republican senators and eight Democrats, that's just a no go. Yeah. And, and, and he's just not going to do, you know, he, you know, he is made a pretty strong decision, I think, that he's sticking with about how he wants the Senate to run and how he thinks it should run. And it is, you know, at odds with, you know, what we have thought about traditionally and what people have often trumpeted as Mm -hmm. what makes the Texas legislature different in terms of compromise and cooperation and everybody's kind of chummy about it. And, and, you know, this is where as a communicator and as somebody who spent, you know, is very good at the public managing his public presentation of self, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you connect that to sort of the la- the previous clip and what was happening mm-hmm. there. If you if you go and you watch that longer, you know, the longer debate over the Campbell bill and all of the you know the the shifting that went on and the replaying and the kind of you know re- rebooting of that bill right. yesterday, the underlying mood of the Senate is just palpable. Mm, what do you mean in that? And what I mean is, you know, both. The Democrats that spoke up against that, yeah, pretty dispirited. Yeah, I mean, and and not to, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. No. but you know, you can see them questioning Senator Campbell. You've watched a lot of episodes of this, yes, knowing that she's not going to really answer their question in a very direct way, which she does not do. Right. But they also, it, you know, baked in is the knowledge that. They're they're not probably not going to affect the trajectory of this. Well, thing. I, mean, I mean, it goes back to you know exactly what you said, which was you know odd in that scenario not to object to the motion at the beginning, even just to kind of have that conversation, right? right? But and again, it, and Dan Patrick said it. I don't know if that's really yeah, you know, and, what you uh, want to do. And so you know, I mean, all so these two things obviously we picked out this. You know, the, the nice thing about to me and picking out these two episodes, and there's lots of stuff going on right yeah. now. We could have picked out a lot of things, but. Is that it really, I mean, these things, I think, together mm-hmm. kind of capture the dynamic between the two chambers. Mm-hmm. You know, we haven't talked about Dade Phelan, but, you know, lurking in here is the differences between the way Phelan is running the House. We've mm-hmm. talked about the very different nature of his priorities, the bill right. sponsors on his list of priorities, the priorities, the lieutenant governor, um, and how that is all playing out. A lot of this is happening, you know— more or less as expected. Yeah. That doesn't mean that we know how things are going to turn out. There's a lot of uncertainty in this. But it, it, it's an interesting week for the pattern to really be settling in as, as, again, the you know things are getting much more serious and the pace is picking up. You know, yeah, and hearing you talking about that, it really does encapsulate, you know, this sort of you know, interesting element between the last session and this session, right? In the sense that the last session was so conservative and so many things were passed and yet there was still a certain amount of discontent. And you can see that in the Republican Party platform here. You can see that in the elevation of Matt Rinaldi as chair of the Republican Party and the way that he has approached that job, Yeah. right? But in some ways, you know, if I were to sort of do a shorthand for like, well, what, you know, you have someone, you know, especially like a reporter from Madison is, you know, what are they upset about? You know, and they being, you know, sort of Republican voters, especially Republican primaries. And the answer that I would give is that, you know, I think the, what upset, you know, what is where the upset comes from within the activist corners of the party is this view that they've got a majority in the Senate, a supermajority, as they define it each time. Yeah. They've got the lieutenant governor. They've got 
the governor. They've got the Speaker of the House. They have a majority of members. Therefore, they should be able to pass everything they want. They should not right. have to touch anything they don't want. Now, the problem, so one, okay, and I think the lieutenant governor has taken that on, but the problem is, is kind of, you know, as we were kind of well, talking- Well, he, he gets to use it as a stick. He gets to use it as a stick, but I think the problem also is, you know, kind of, it kind of actually goes back to somewhat where we start, which is, you know, and something I say to a lot of people too, you know, the legislature is going to have about 5,000 bills floating around out there. You know, they'll pass about a thousand. And I'm not talking about, you know, the joint resolutions and stuff like that. And maybe- 20 bills or or their 20 bills and their companions might like peak public salience a little bit. People yeah. might be kind of aware that something's going on, right? And when you're talking about when we're talking about this issue of like we should be able to pass everything we want, it's not about like what do we want? Like water infrastructure. No, nobody's no that's not it. It's like yeah. no, we want to make sure that there's no transition related care. We want to make sure that there's a, you know, a voucher program, whatever that whatever that manifests itself as and some right. of that's going to be leading some of that's following it depends right but there's sort of that that you know that that you take sort of the Campbell piece on on that bill and then you have the GOP chair kind of saying hey you guys messed up you better fix that and then they quickly go and fix it in the Senate the yeah. House is kind of left holding the bag saying you know WTF right and then you've got the Lieutenant Governor on the, on the Mark Davis show saying yeah look if I don't you know look the only bills that are going to pass are going to have 16 to 19 Republican votes yeah. he said 15 or 16 yeah. but yeah. Um, you know, it's like, and that kind of, you know, I mean, that is, a, you know, again, to say the fact that like, this is Dan Patrick's home ideologically, but also right. this is something that he is manifesting. And the truth is, whether the house follows suit or not, it actually doesn't really matter for Dan Patrick, right? If the house doesn't follow through on all this stuff, he'll then kick he, him around, which he's happy to do, which he's happy to do. He's happy to raise money off of. He's ra He's happy to get in their business. He's probably happy to use it as a justification for another term to get done what he what he hasn't gotten done yet. And then, and if they do pass it and they do have to fold on it, then he claims leadership. And yeah, you know, either way, thank so, God, thank God he was there, right? So you know, yes. So I, I think that. What really comes out of this is a you know is a very it's a good setup for what we're going to see in the house on Thursday mm -hmm. and how that's going to be a real we're going to you know we're going to learn some things I think in this budget debate yeah. as we see how some of these amendments are dealt with and what they look like and 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 how that how that day goes right and who you know what what the win loss kind of record looks like on some of those amendments and and then what that budget bill looks like as it goes to the Senate. So with that, thanks to Josh for being here, helping gather data for this. Uh, thanks, as always, to our excellent production team in the Deb Studio in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin for processing those clips at the last minute and generally giving us excellent production support. Uh, data we talked about can be found, as always, at texaspolitics.utexas.edu. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back soon with another Second Reading Podcast. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.